The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 87, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God, Selah. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this one was born there. And of Zion, it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the peoples, this one was born there, Selah. Both the singers and the players on instruments say, all my springs are in you. All right, we're in Joshua 21 still. It's verses 20 through 26. This is entitled, The Cities of Kohath, the Levites. And the families of the children of Kohath, the Levites, the rest of the children of Kohath, even they had the cities of their lot from the tribe of Ephraim. For they gave them Shechem with its common land in the mountains of Ephraim, a city of refuge for the slayer, Gezer with its common land, Kibzaim with its common land, and Beit Horon with its common land, four cities. And from the tribe of Dan, El Tekeh with its common land, Gibbeton with its common land, Aijalon with its common land, and Gat Ramon with its common land, four cities. And from the half-tribe of Manasseh, Tanakh with its common land, and Gat Ramon with its common land, two cities. All the ten cities of their common lands were for the rest of the families of the children of Kohath. Repetition is an important tool in remembering key points concerning various aspects of life. I repeat, repetition is an important tool in remembering key points concerning various aspects of life. Got it? God knows this is true, so his word is chock full of repetition. Once, a black hat Jay called me on Friday, as he always does. He calls me every Friday afternoon and said something like, we're reading the prophets right now, and they say the same thing that we've already read several times. First, hats off to Black Hat J for reading the Bible. Second, this means he wasn't dozing while reading the other passages. Hats off to that as well. When you read 1 and 2 Kings, you'll find passages that are very similar and at times identical to 1 and 2 Chronicles. After that, you will read many of the same themes again in the prophets. But there is also repetition in the later books from the earlier books, such as the genealogies in Moses that are repeated in Chronicles. And then in the New Testament, it will repeat some of those things again. The reason for this is obvious. It is to make logical connections that we simply have not made before. However, it is also important because we simply don't pay attention to key points unless they are repeated. For example, in the New Testament, we are clearly and unambiguously told that the law is fulfilled. We are told this many times as well. And yet, for various reasons, we may not pay heed to it. That will be discussed in more detail later. Our text verse comes from Hebrews chapter 7. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment, 
because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law, telling you what the former commandment is, meaning the law of Moses, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Our text verse will be repeated later while making a point about the need for repetition in Scripture. But as an example to get us thinking about it, my mom once sent me a video by one of the bigwigs at Ligonier Ministries who was being interviewed during a conference. The person doing the interview asked this obviously well-versed theologian about the status of the law. He responded with something like, the law is done. It is over. We are not under law, but grace. Well, isn't that special? He got it right. The next question, and I mean the very next thing that he was asked by the interviewer was, are Christians required to tithe? The guy looked apoplectic. He started hemming and hawing. He breathed in heavily and exhaled accordingly. He got flush. He went pasty. He stammered and bumbled through his words. He grunted in apparent agony. And then he carefully tried to exposit his thoughts as if he were Orator Orvi. His guts groaned and his knees creaked under the stress of the tightened sinews. And of course, through all of the convoluted words and phrases that emanated from his stammering mouth, he defended the notion that Christians are, in fact, required to tithe. Thus, he negated the truth of his answer to the first question that he was asked. Why is repetition necessary? It is to hopefully convince us that doctrines are set and fixed and that it is how the Lord expects us to see those things. The reason for these repetitious opening words is because there is a lot of repetition in today's passage from what has been seen in previous passages. We are being shown a truth that repetition is an important tool in remembering key points concerning various aspects of life. This is especially so when it comes to theology and doctrine. We are told the same things again and again and again in the Bible to assure us that this is what God really means. He says something, he says the same thing again in a different way, and then he says it again in yet another way. And sometimes he even says the exact same thing several times. He does this explicitly or in metaphor, simile, typology, or in various other ways as well. Let us pay heed to what the Lord says, especially when he repeats himself because he wants us to be certain about his intentions when he does. This is a great lesson that is to be found in his superior word. And so, let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of two thoughts today is 4, 4, 2, and 10. It is verses 20 through 26. Verse 20, and the families of the children of Kohath, the Levites, the rest of the children of Kohath. The Hebrew uses a verb as a noun, ha notorim. It more literally says, and to families, sons Kohath, the Levites, the remainings from sons Kohath. The meaning is derived from the previous verses. The allotment for the tribe of Kohath was divided into two portions. The first half went to the sons of Aaron, meaning the priestly class. This was described in verses 9 through 19 that we looked at previously. Here, those of the tribe of Kohath who are not priests are to receive their allotment. 
as they are non-priestly Levites, their work will not look to the firstborn role of the priestly work of Jesus Christ, but to his other roles as the firstborn, remembering that the Levites were taken in place of the firstborn of Israel, as recorded in Numbers 3. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I myself have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel, instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the children of Israel. Therefore the Levites shall be mine, because all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord." The work of the priest's duties reflects that of the firstborn in sacrifices and atonement, whereas the other Levites reflect all of the other duties in bearing the weight and the responsibility of the law. The duties do overlap to some extent, but for these allotments next to be named, it is the latter of the two that will be referred to. As for the name Kohath, it means either obedience or gathering assembly. Of them, it next says, verse 20 continues, even they had the cities of their lot from the tribe of Ephraim. Rather, it precisely reads, and it was, cities their lot from tribe Ephraim. The cities of the first half, those of the priesthood, were found in Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, all very near the area of Jerusalem, which will someday be the focal point of worship for Israel. The providence of God, centuries in advance of it happening, determined that it would be this way. As Ephraim borders Benjamin to the north, it means that these allotted cities are not separated any great distance from their brothers, the priests. Of the cities of Ephraim, it says, verse 21, for they gave them Shechem with its common land in the mountains of Ephraim, a city of refuge for the slayer. The translation is out of the order of the text, and it misses some of the necessary nuances. It says, and gave to them city refuge the slayer. The stress is on the fact that it is a city of refuge, Shechem, and her common lands in Mount Ephraim. The name Shechem is identical to Shechem, meaning shoulder. Thus, it literally means shoulder. However, that comes from shakam, signifying to incline, as in inclining the shoulder to a burden. Hence, it is normally translated as to rise or start early. Abarim defines Shechem as responsibility, but in the sense of having a sense of responsibility. Ephraim has a dual meaning of twice fruitful and ashes. As has been seen in many, many sermons, a mountain, a har, is a lot of something gathered together. It is synonymous with a large but centralized group of people. Along with this is, verse 21 continues, Gezer with its common land. Ve'et Gezer, ve'et Migrasheha, and Gezer and her common lands. Gezer means part or portion. Verse 22, Kibzaim with its common land. Again, it more precisely reads, and Kibzaim and her common land. The name Kibzaim is found only here in scripture. Because of this, it is believed to be the same as Jokmeam, found in 1 Chronicles 6, verse 68. The German scholar Jesenius notes that both names have a similar etymology, and the name may have evolved over the years. As for the name Kibzaim, that comes from kabatz, to gather or to collect. Being a plural, it means double gathering or double heap. Verse 22 continues, and Beit Horon, with its common land, four cities. More precisely, and Bet Horon and her common lands, cities four. 
Beit Horon means House of the Hollow and also House of Freedom. Four, according to Bollinger, and I know you've heard this at least 800 times, is the number of things that have a beginning, of things that are made, of material things, and matter itself. It is the number of material completeness. Hence, it is the world number and especially the city number. Next, the list continues with designations in another tribe. Verse 23, and from the tribe of Dan, El Teke with its common land. As before, it is more precise. El Teke and her common lands. Dan means judge. El Teke was seen in Joshua 19.44, and this will be its last appearance in scripture. It's an interesting name. The first portion is from El, meaning God, or small God. The second half may be from a root TQ, not used in the Bible, but which is found in Arabic. It means to fear or to take heed. Thus, it would mean God is dread or God-fearing. However, it could also come from the word kol, which is a feminine word meaning to vomit. As such, it may mean God vomits, God vomits her, and so on. Along with it, verse 23 continues, Gibbethon with its common land. Gibbethon and her common lands. Gibbethon is an intensive form of gibbah, meaning a hill. Thus, it means mound, height, or lofty place. But, as has been seen before, Gibbah is connected in the New Testament to Gabbatha, the elevated knoll where Christ was judged prior to his crucifixion. That is followed by, verse 24, Aijalon with its common land. Aijalon and her common lands. Aijalon comes from Ayal, a deer. It means place of the deer. However, we saw before that comes from the same as Ayil, or a ram which is derived from a word indicating strength. Thus, as seen in Joshua 10, place of strength is not out of line. Verse 24 continues, and Gat Ramon with its common land, four cities. Gat Ramon and her common lands, cities, four. Gat Ramon comes from Gat, wine press, and Ramon, pomegranate. However, as has been previously seen, the pomegranate symbolizes harvest-ready fruit. And so it can further mean mature mind or harvest ready. Thus, it is interpreted as winepress of the mature mind or winepress of the harvest ready. Dan is directly west of Ephraim. Therefore, these Levitical cities are again closely joined with the others, keeping the family together in their allotments. Verse 25, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh, Tanakh with its common land. And from half-tribe Manasseh, Tanakh, and her common lands. Manasseh means both to forget and from a debt. Tanakh is a King James Version misspelling, which simply followed the mistake of the Geneva Bible. This was then subsequently followed by the New King James Version. It is the same name used five other times in Scripture and translated as Ta'anach. The meaning of it is uncertain. Some think it is derived from an Egyptian or an Arabic word. There is no corresponding root word found in Scripture. Jones's Dictionary of the Old Testament Proper Names notes an equivalent Arabic verb that means to wander, and thus he translates it as wandering through. Also, it next says, verse 25 continues, and get Ramon with its common land, two cities. And get Ramon and her common lands, cities too. Gat Ramon is the same name just noted in the territory of Dan. 
John Lang takes this repetition as a copyist's error by stating Gat Ramon instead of Iblaim that was noted in Joshua 17 verse 11, and which is identified later in 1 Chronicles 670 as Biliam, a Levitical city. The Greek translation would tend to support this, but other translations such as the Vulgate, Peshitta, and Lamsa all say Gat Ramon, and I would say that is correct. The number two is the number of division or difference. However, when there are two things, they will contrast, but also confirm a whole, such as the two natures of Jesus Christ. They contrast, but they confirm his full nature, being both God and man. This half-tribe of Manasseh is directly north of Ephraim. Therefore, like the other allotments for Kohath, these Levitical cities are again closely joined with the others, one big happy family. Because of this, the entire family is tightly knit together in their allotments. With that, the allotment ends with verse 26. All the ten cities with their common lands were for the rest of the families of the children of Kohath. It more precisely reads, all cities ten with their common lands, two families, sons Kohath, the remainings. This then defines the second allotment to the Kohathites, the non-priestly class. Ten signifies the perfection of divine order. As Bollinger notes, it implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. As Kohath has been divided into two separate portions of allotted cities, those for the priests and those for the Levites, it means there is a contrast between the two, and yet they are a part of a whole. Again and again, the truth is there for us to see. The work of Christ is not limited to just one group of people. His grace is available to all who will bow the knee. Together, anyone can come worship neath the steeple. He is the God of the Jew, it is true, but he is also the God of Gentiles from every nation. There is nothing to exclude either me or you, whether Japanese, British, German, or Haitian. God shows us this repeatedly, that he is the God of all mankind. When we call out to him through Jesus, he sets us free. The chains are gone, and we are no longer blind. Children of God, see what he has done for us. Thank you, O oh God, for having sent Jesus. Our second thought today is explaining the typology. Of these allotments to Kohath, most of the names have been seen and explained in previous sermons. A careful study using the same meanings and typology as before will reveal the meaning of what is being pictured. Like I said, and I say it again, I'll probably say it in more sermons, I use the same typology each time because people that don't do that are making stuff up. They're making the Bible say what they want it to say. You have to draw out what the Bible is telling you. So I will always use the same typology, the same names for the typology. As these allotments are to Levites, they will obviously detail aspects regarding Christ as the firstborn in his work under the law. However, the content of the passage is mostly centered on the naming of the cities. And so this will not only reflect the work of Christ, but how it then applies to his people. In the naming of these tribal lands, Christ's work is typologically anticipated. In the naming of the cities, the effect of his work as it is realized in his people is anticipated. Together, you will see that these verses anticipate the gathering together of Jews and Gentiles into one body. In other words, the pattern runs consistently. There is the work of Christ, and then there is how his work is realized in his people. Mount Ephraim, 
twice fruitful ashes, looks to the gathering together of a group of people, meaning the mount, based on the work of Christ, who is twice fruitful through his work, bringing in Jew and Gentile. But the work itself is represented by the ashes, signifying his afflictions to bring this about. Shechem, having a sense of responsibility, looks to the believer who understands his violation of the law and has accepted Christ's fulfillment of it. Being a city of refuge, it indicates the fully sufficient work of Christ, both for salvation and for eternal security in that salvation. We saw that during those sermons. Gezer, portion, signifies the inheritance that has been received because of Christ's work. That is further explained in the next city, Kibzaim, or double gathering. The effects of Christ's work, as Paul explains in Romans 9.24, saying, Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. It is therefore another confirmation of what Ephraim, twice fruitful, signifies. Ephraim reveals the matter from the perspective of Christ, accomplishing it, while Kibzaim reveals it from the perspective of how it is realized in those he saves. He is twice fruitful. They are a double gathering. Beit Haron explains the state of this gathering, dwelling in the house of freedom, meaning from the guilt of imputed sin. As there are four allotted cities, the world and city number in Ephraim, it signifies that its effects encompass the entire world. No ethnicity or group is left out. This is seen, for example, in the words of Matthew 28. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the Jews. No, he doesn't say that. He says, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. The next tribe for allotment is Dan. It refers to Christ, who is the judge of all people. The named cities show how that is then realized in those who are his people. El Teke, God-fearing, speaks for itself. Having come to Christ, those who are his have demonstrated that this is our position in him. This is more precisely reflected in the next name, Gibbeton, or Mound. It looks to the spot where Christ was judged, Gabatha, and in turn, the place where our sin was judged by God in him. It is this that brought us to this God-fearing state. That is next followed by Igelon, place of strength. It is where the believer looks to, meaning the full, final, finished, and forever work of Christ Jesus as our place of strength for eternal salvation. Gat Ramon, wine press of the mature mind, follows logically next. It refers to the effects of Christ's work in us. Everything that is contrary to holiness and godliness will be pressed out of us as we grow in Christ. Obviously, this is something that is different for each person. But to God, for those in Christ, we're already positionally in this state, even if it's not yet actualized. However, the great day ahead will be when it is fully realized in us. Until then, we are to press on in Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes. But in understanding, be mature. Wine press of the mature mind. In Dan, there were also four allotted cities. This conveys the same meaning as in Ephraim. The effects of Christ cover all people groups in the world, 
None are excluded from his work. Finally came the half-tribe of Manasseh. The dual meaning of he shall forget from a debt signifies that Christ shall forget the past deeds of the person who has come to him because he has paid their sin debt. Due to the nature of the name Ta'anach, only speculation can be made. But if Jones's definition, wandering through, is correct, it is a sufficient description of believers as they await glorification. How many times do believers use this or a similar phrase to speak of their lives in Christ? I'm just passing through. Gathramon carries the same signification as just named in the allotments in Dan. The two cities confirm the scope of Christ's work. It contrasts for Jews and for Gentiles, and yet it confirms the whole body of believers, thus supporting the two mentions of four cities each. Though it's only a few verses, they form a marvelous rendering of what God has done for us in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And more, the pattern is consistent with all that has been seen so far. Time and again, there is seen the work of Christ, and then there is seen the effects of that work for his people. Understanding this, the final note of there being 10 cities confirms this as well. As a whole, 10 total cities reveal the perfection of divine order being worked out through Jesus Christ. Nothing is wanting. The number and order are perfect. The whole cycle is complete. With that noted, a look at the totality of the Kohathite allotments can be considered. The two divisions look to the work of the firstborn, that of his priestly work of sacrifice and atonement, as well as that of the other Levitical work of Christ, bearing the responsibility of the law. As a whole, these tribal allotments explain the work of Christ, and the cities speak of how that is realized in his people. Though the verses repeat a lot of information, they are also structured in a way that provides new information while also confirming the same thought that has been presented in numerous ways already. The great thing about this approach is that the more we see such repetition in typology, we can be assured that the typology is correct because the pictures keep matching. Even if they have been presented with different aspects, such as borders, cities, tribes, and so on, or be it peculiar stories about various travels, certain objects, such as the serpent on the pole, and so on. When the typology results in the same thing being expressed again and again, we can conclude that God must be repeating this so that there is no mistake in our theology. To understand this, we can look at what is open and explicit in Scripture and see how absolutely necessary it is to repeat the same thought again and again and again. For example, the fulfillment and ending of the law by Jesus Christ is mentioned so many times in the New Testament that there should be no doubt among Christians that this is true. A short but not all-inclusive list will show us this. I'll start with Matthew 5:17, and we'll go from there. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Everybody stops with the first half of that and says, see, we're still under the law. No, he says he fulfilled it. John 19, 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It's still going on, folks. Sorry, you got to keep working your way to heaven. No, it is finished. Good job. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Romans 3, 31. Do we make void the law through faith? 
Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. The law is established in Christ, our faith in it. Romans 6, 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Romans 7, 4, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. We're not bearing fruit to self under the law. We're bearing fruit to God through grace. Romans 7, 6, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The letter means the law of Moses. Romans 10, 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And if you don't believe, you are obligated to fulfill every precept of the law. Romans 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by works of the law, no flesh. Look around at every person here and every person you've ever seen, ever met, or ever will meet. No flesh shall be justified. Romans 2.16. Next is Galatians 2.19. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. Galatians 2.21. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Galatians 3.2, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Remember the king of Ai being hung? Pictured that. Remember the five kings being hung? Pictured that. It's all in the typology. Galatians 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Galatians 5.18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out, here it is, you got something with writing all over it. When you do this, you wipe it out. What does that mean? You've erased it. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Hebrews 7, 18 and 19, for on the one hand, I read this earlier, I believe, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect, 
On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Next one, Hebrews 8.13, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Hebrews 10, 8, and 9, previously saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. He then said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, meaning the law of Moses, that he may establish the second, meaning the new covenant in his blood. That is only 20 examples of the law being completed and ended. It took only a few minutes to compile and a couple of minutes to read. And yet, it is only a very brief representation of what the New Testament says about this issue. If one were to take all of the examples, explanations, metaphors, and subtle hints that are made concerning the matter, we would be here for a long time. It is a point of doctrine that is so clearly and precisely stated that surely nobody could get it wrong, could they? Well, no. Such is sadly not the case. In fact, to one degree or another, and speaking in the broadest sense, almost nobody gets it right. Sometimes it's purposeful, like stammering Stanley that was mentioned in our opening comments concerning tithing. He could not give up on the law when it came to money. Sometimes it is purposeful because of pride. That is the type that Paul warns the most vehemently against. They are the Judaizers of the world, boasting in flesh and thus rejecting the grace of God in Christ. To them, the law is a means to an end. Christ, even if he is brought into the picture, is really only an object to be placed on a shelf out of the way of the one whose works bring attention to prideful self. There are those who say they get grace, but who still personally cling to one or two or ten points of the law, thinking, surely I need to do this or I need to not do that. Grace is that hard to understand, and it is reflected in the teaching of innumerable people who claim that we must do something from the law in order to please God. Eventually, you can see where grace is really not their stand at all. Although the passages today really weren't focused on the law versus grace, that doctrine is a marvelous point to show us how hard it is for us to get what God is telling us. It is seen moments after the fall in Genesis 3, again and again through the books of Moses, dozens of times so far in Joshua, and the verses just cited show us that it is a key point in the New Testament as well. As for the typology of this passage, that of the sufficiency of Christ to save and the broadness of its effects upon Jews and Gentiles, that escapes many people as well. There are Jews who believe that only Jews will be saved. There are those who teach that Jews and Gentiles are saved in different ways. There are those who teach that various groups of Gentiles are outside of God's mercy, and so on. This passage is clear just as the many already studied are and as many will be in the Old Testament as it continues to unfold. This continues as the New Testament is properly studied as well. So pay attention to the repetition. It is there for a reason. And if you ever come across typology explained by someone that doesn't appear to match everything else you have learned, you can bet that he has misinterpreted what is being conveyed. Pay attention to the word 
Pay attention to how people evaluate the word and pay heed to stay on the straight path concerning key points of doctrine that are so clearly and explicitly stated in Scripture. These things are important, so pay attention. Our clo- Amen. Our closing verse comes, I'll tell you what, before I give you a closing verse, I need to tell you about Jesus, don't I? I mean, he's been all through this passage, but we don't want people to escape the necessary information, okay? And I repeat it every week because repetition is good. Jesus Christ came into a world full of sinful people, okay? That's just the truth that the Bible teaches, original sin. Adam sinned. And that is spread, I think it's Romans 5, to all men. Because one man said, it's in us. It's already in us. And there is nothing we can do to get our way back to heaven because of it. God is infinite. We have to reach him with sin. It's impossible. Jesus Christ had to cut the line of sin in humanity. And he did. He came fulfilling the picture of circumcision, the issuance of sin from man to man to man to man all the way through. When I say man, I'm talking about the father, the father, the father. It just transmits. But every woman has got a father. So women are included in this as well. Okay. Jesus Christ was born of God, not a human being. And so the line of sin is cut in him. Now he can potentially take away sin. He can potentially do it. He has no sin at his birth, no original sin. But he has to live out because he was born under the law of Moses, the law that he gave to Israel. He's got to live out that law perfectly. Then if he fails in one point, we're done. Adam had one point and he failed. Jesus had all of it and he prevailed. He did not sin as recorded in the four gospels. And because of that, he is now an acceptable, qualified sacrifice to take away the sins of the people just as the typology of the Old Testament showed us. I'm going down to Jerusalem with this beautiful little lamb. I'm going to place my hands on its head, and I'm going to confess my sin over it, and then we are going to slaughter that lamb as a picture of my sin being transferred to it. It's only typology. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin, according to the book of Hebrews, but it was anticipating Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And he did it. He gave up his life in exchange for our sin, And then he went into the grave, and after that, he rose again, proving that he had no sin of his own, proving that your sin remains in the grave if you accept the proposition, and proving that he is the Lord God. If you believe that simple message, the Bible says you will be saved. So I would ask you today to simply believe it, okay? Our closing verse comes from 1 Timothy 4, it's verse 16. Talking about doctrine, I mean, look at this. We've got 20 examples of the law right here. And yet people can't get it right. Is the law fulfilled? Oh, yes, it's fulfilled. Remember sending me that video, Susan Garrett? Do you remember that? The very next question, are we required to tithe? And man, that guy, I thought he was going to buckle under the pressure. We have to insert the law because it protects us or something, makes us rich. Whatever you think, forget that. Trust in Jesus Christ. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Next week is Joshua 21, 27 through 33. What will we find out about the typology we are being shown? It's entitled, The Cities of Gershon. That'll be our 48th Joshua sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? 
Now, I got a short poem for you, and then we'll uh, go ahead and take the Lord's Supper. And it's so good to have our sister here for the first time in a long time. She said, I just miss taking the Lord's Supper. She lives way up in Bradenton. She can't see two feet in front of her eyes, but she's getting them fixed. She got one fixed and now the other one. And uh, so she hasn't been driving. And Ray graciously brought her down here because she's just tired of not communing with other Christians. So, okay, before I give you that poem, though, I got a question for you. All right, if you get this, you will get this. Okay. Ooh. Yeah, I know they have, but I didn't buy these. Somebody gave these to me, and I'm passing them out. So, okay. The cap, and you know, if you don't spend this, then they win. See what I'm saying? So you got to spend it. Okay. The capitals that were atop the pillars of the temple were adorned with what fruit? I can't give it to anybody. I'm so, everybody got it. Everybody got it. I should have. Well, you know what? I'm always being accused of, it's too hard. It's too hard. And so this week I thought I'm going to give one that surely, and like 75 people said it in unison. That was in the sermon. What? Yeah, but it, that, it, that, that had nothing to do. That's why I picked that is because, yeah. But everybody, yeah, I can't give one to everybody because I'll tell you what you can do. I'm going to let all of you, if you want, go out to the Mexican restaurant together today, okay? All right, I'm going to read you that for the one person that's sitting here saying, I didn't know that. Okay, I'm going to read you what it says there. Okay, next, from now on out, listen, from now on out, I'm giving you hard questions. No more easy stuff. That was, that, I am so sad that everybody got that. I thought there'd be like two people and... Oh, my God. Okay, two Chronicles, three. Um, okay, also he made in front of the temple two pillars, 35 cubits high, and the capital that was on top of each of them was five cubits. He made wreaths of chain work as in the inner sanctuary and put them on the top of the pillars, and he made 100 pomegranates. And then he set up the pillars before the temple, one on the right hand and the other on the left. He called the name of the one on the right. Anybody? Boaz and Achan. Yes, it's Jaquin and Boaz, the other way. But yeah, Achan would be right in Hebrew. Um, but anyway, it's the one on the right is Jaquin, <laughs> and the name on the left was Boaz. Okay, so you got that. Now, if you look, this is kind of interesting. If you look in Jeremiah at the destruction of the temple, the number of pomegranates is, that's right, it's different. Why? I just have a feeling, I, I, this is just Charlie Garrett 101, I have no idea if this is correct. Why would there be fewer pomegranates on the, on the chains than there were when it was built? Why would that be? And he specifically notes this in scripture. How big were these columns? They were huge. They were huge and they were hollow. I bet that there was a mechanism that the ark could be placed in and transported down underground, filled with sand, it would bury it. I, that's just a guess. I have no idea if that's correct or not, but every time I come to that, I say there is a reason why those numbers don't match, and Jeremiah records it specifically. There's something triggering something that allowed something else to occur. Just a guess. Could be totally wrong. I just... Yeah, Second David chapter three says exactly why. We just that's right. okay. Here's our poem, and we're going to be done. The cities of Kohath, the Levites, and the families of the children of Kohath, the Levites, the rest of the children of Kohath. It would seem 
Even they had cities of their lot from the tribe of Ephraim. For they gave them Shechem with its common land in the mountains of Ephraim, a city of refuge for the slayer. Gezer with its common land. Did they ever produce a famous music player? Kibzaim with its common land and one more. Beit Horon with its common land. Cities four. And from the tribe of Dan, El Teke with its common land. Gibbethon with its common land. Pretty swell. Ijalon with its common land. And Gatramon with its common land. Four cities as well. And from the half tribe of Manasseh, these they did accrue. Tanakh with its common land. And Gatramon with its common land. Cities too. All the ten cities with their common lands, according to the math, were for the rest of the families of the children of Kohath. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful word. Thank you for all the treasures that are in it, all the wonders and delights and confirmations. And thank you for the overall message of this word that you sent Jesus to bring us back to you. Thank you for that. Thank you for Jesus, who is our light. He is our hope. He is our way. He is our path. He is our door. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our all in all. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, we started a new box of matzah today. Okay, the last one, I don't think you guys got any of it. Man, was that really good. But there's another one in back. So there's another one, and we'll get that soon enough. But right now, this one came from our brother Mark. He brought these in. These are Straits Passover matzos. Okay. It says, um, don't eat too much, you'll get fat. What? No. Um, it really doesn't say anything. I mean, they really don't spend, it says Passover matzoh, the original cracker. Um, oh, here it is. I knew they'd have something to boost it up to retain. Oh, no. Well, it implicitly, they're implicitly saying it has this. To, to retain the true straights flavor and crispness, crispness, meaning that they think it has flavor and crispness, we suggest the following and then tell you what to do with it, okay? So they're saying it is flavory and crisp, so you all can decide about that. And it's kosher. It's kosher, buddy. I'm telling you what. Uh, it's got our family story on the back. If you want to know the family story, here it is. But it's flavory. It's, okay, we're going to find out right now, but, I, you know, people bring these in. Sometimes I buy them, sometimes people send them, or Mark, he found them, and he says, well, let's try these. So we're going to try it. If it's bad, don't blame me. Okay, to beat him up. See if it's flavory. Yeah, it, and crisp. All right. I'm just we're having fun here because uh, the Lord is so good to us. He just He just blesses us so abundantly. He gives us joy in our heart. He gives us food and and uh, when it's time to eat. And uh, if He ever withholds that from us, I would hope that you would be strong enough to say the Lord's name be praised. Even you know I heard a. a, a preacher speaking one time and he said that there was a family in uh, uh, Africa and they were out of food and all they had was like eight beans and each person got a bean for dinner and they sat and thanked the Lord for it. Mm -hmm. I mean that's people that really understand their God. Okay, So uh, may we be whatever happens in this world and it looks like it might be happening quickly. Let's be ready. But hopefully, you know, maybe we'll be out of here at the rapture too. I, we don't know. But oh, just boy. hold yes. fast to your faith no matter what happens. 
keep your eyes on Jesus because yes. things could go south really quickly. Mm -hmm.